Hello, and thank you for listening to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Lauren Cochran, and today I'm talking to Alex White, PhD candidate in history at the University of Cambridge, about his research on radio propaganda and its role in the decolonisation of East Africa. Hi, Alex. Thank you for agreeing to participate in this podcast and agreeing to share your doctoral research with us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience? Hi, yeah. Thanks so much for the chance to speak. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to it all week. Um, I'm Alex. I'm a third year PhD student in history at the University of Cambridge with a general interest in all things political history and media theory and the ways that they kind of intersect in the study of propaganda. Uh, I'm also currently editor in chief of Doing History in Public, which is Cambridge's own public history blog. So could you provide a summary of your project? Yeah, um, so as you say, I research anti-colonial radio propaganda and its potential role in the decolonization of East Africa. In particular, I'm interested in who was listening to anti-colonial radio and how, if at all, it actually changed their minds. By focusing in on the international, um, intentional and unintentional audiences to broadcasts, I hope to write a history of international radio that doesn't just assume that radio was influential, but rather evaluates its impact based on a variety of sources. Um, but to say any more, it might help to start with some context. Um, so in the late 1920s, broadcasters began to use shortwave radio signals to transmit radio programs across the world. Uh, for the first time, it became possible to transmit words and sounds past oceans and across borders and directly into the homes of foreign listeners. The physicist Edward Appleton, who helped to discover the phenomenon, called it the shortwave revolution. And when it came to communicating across continents, it was genuinely nothing short of a revolution. As you can imagine, this was used almost immediately for the purposes of political persuasion. Broadcasters began trying to manipulate foreign audiences, building support for their own causes and undermining those of their rivals. Colonial audiences were actually a kind of early target by the mid-1930s, the Germans and Italians were running their own propaganda services in Arabic to try and foment anti-colonial rebellions and unrest that could undermine their British and French rivals. These programs appear to have been audible as far afield as Mombasa in Kenya, where local notables like Haida Kindi played a role in propagating the messages of those broadcasts to crowds of Kenyans. And then by 1950, East Africa had begun to emerge as a target for propaganda in its own right. Cheap transistor radio sets were entering the market for the first time, and the decolonization of South Asia seemed to suggest that Africa could follow in the not too distant future. And so in response, new services from Egypt, India, China, and the Soviet Union, just to name a few, began to voice their support for East African liberation. In many cases, these services were inspired by a pre-existing hostility to Britain, or the hope that an independent Africa would be amenable to the communist world order. But one of the most interesting broadcasts in, in this period was Israel, which also presented itself as a post-colonial nation seeking to win potential African allies against the Arab states. By 1960 to 1962, which is in some respects the height of this um, broadcasting period, the airwaves were busy with newscasts and political commentaries, but also music, uh, competitions and anti-colonial radio plays. If the ultimate aim of each broadcast was to persuade East Africans, the broadcasters of this era clearly resorted to a surprising range of cultural forms. And this was all a concern, as you might imagine, to the British government. For people less familiar with East African history, at the beginning of the 1950s, the British establishment was still holding out hope for continued colonial rule in parts of East Africa. 
by the late 1950s, they had expected that Kenyan independence may be as soon as 1970. By 1963, all of East Africa had already been decolonized. And throughout this period, given the span of propaganda, the British meticulously recorded everything that was being said to East Africans through the anti-colonial broadcasts and tried to measure the effect that it appeared to be having on the ground. They built models of how the so-called African mind responded to persuasion and, of course, invested hugely in their own broadcasting facilities, producing their own pro-imperial propaganda. At the same time, though, different parts of the imperialist state responded to propaganda in different ways and competed with their internal rivals for funding. In the last years of colonialism in East Africa, anti-colonial broadcasts seem to have contributed to a real anxiety and a kind of institutional breakdown within the colonial apparatus. And can you tell us why you chose this project? Yeah, um, so I suppose my initial interest was in political relations between nations of the you know, so-called global south. It was something I just hadn't been aware of before starting university, and I was amazed at the extent of events like um, the Bandon Conference and the non-aligned movement, the Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Conferences. At the time, they seemed to point to a truly global Cold War, even if my understanding of it was ridiculously simplistic. And then from there, my undergraduate supervisor at Edinburgh, Emma Hunter, was really formative to my work. And she suggested that I look at media and public culture across borders in East Africa. Uh, I read Christopher J. Lee's Making a World After Empire, uh, and especially James Brennan's amazing work on Radio Cairo. And by that point, I was completely hooked. Like the idea of propaganda as a form of diplomacy became a significant feature of my undergrad dissertation, which looked at Egypt's relations with Africa. Uh, and then it went on to become another part of my master's dissertation, which focused on the same, but from the perspective of Israel. And as I was writing that master's in Cambridge, I realized that I wanted the space to write about radio more specifically. I'd been taking a really engaging course on global print cultures taught by Ruth Watson. And she introduced me to Karen Barber's ideas about addressivity and the audience in Africa. By that time, I'd also devoured Jose Chicuero's work on Rhodesian officials and their attempts to understand African radio listeners. And I realized that for all the work on propaganda in East Africa, very few had so far focused on the audience as an analytic category. And yet, how people listened and how they engaged with broadcasts and indeed what they got out of the broadcasts seemed particularly rich and interesting to me. I wanted, again, maybe slightly naively, to prove that anti-colonial radio had a role in changing hearts and minds in East Africa. And I applied to the PhD at Cambridge with Ruth Watson as my supervisor. As for why to focus on the British response to propaganda and British ideas about African audiences, I mean, that decision was more or less made for me. So two terms into my PhD, the coronavirus pandemic hit the UK and made the prospect of international travel, just say uncertain. I found that I couldn't rely on a project that required going to East Africa, either to access archives or to interview people who'd listened to the radio in the period. And this was particularly true because at the time my research focused on Tanzania, whose response to COVID was marked by official denial, the rejection of mass testing, and occasional rumors that COVID was the cause of President Magafuli's sudden death in 2021. With Ruth's help, I tried to rework my project into one that focused on British sources, British perceptions and British assumptions about propaganda. I found it really helped to look at the British as an audience or a counter audience, if you like, to these same anti-colonial services. 
That is to say, the services weren't explicitly for them, but they did listen to the services and they were very clearly influenced by what was being said. They were concerned about the spread of anti-colonial violence, the, the rhetoric and the popularity of this um, violent discourse. In a strange way, I found a way to get to what I'd first wanted to research. That is the role of anti-colonial propaganda and decolonization. It's just that I had to focus less on the hearts of East Africans and more on the minds of those officials who had the greatest influence on the political process. Can you explain what the main arguments of your project are and what contributions this research has made to the wider scholarship? Yeah, so I think you can get a lot from looking at the audiences to international propaganda as rational consumers. So as agents in their own right, and as listeners who can make critical assessments of broadcasts and reject what they don't want to hear. In media theory, this is sometimes called uses and gratifications theory. That is a model of the media where you focus on what users get out of engaging with the media. And I think I engaged with it first because it seems so anecdotally true in my own life. Like I listen to pieces of the media because I get something from them. I wouldn't listen to something that I disagree with just for the sake of disagreeing with it. Um, in reference to Nigerian radio use, Abdullahi Taizu Abubakar has adapted this into a model of what he calls selective believability, which is the even more profound idea that audiences are more than capable of engaging with media that they already agree with, and simply ignoring or choosing not to believe anything that doesn't already align with their worldview. As such, one of my main arguments is that anti-colonial propaganda in East Africa didn't always manage to persuade its intended audiences. The idea of helpless listeners being indoctrinated by manipulative broadcasts is ultimately a relic of Cold War psychology and rarely found outside of the most obnoxious 1960s textbooks. I argue that propaganda had an impact and found a home when it promoted ideas that its listeners already wanted to hear, when it promoted, promoted feelings of solidarity across borders, when it provided entertainment, when it gave a feeling of community. It couldn't necessarily create feelings when none were there. As such, I argue that things like music, humour, radio plays and competition really, really deserve consideration as part of a dynamic propaganda system. Egyptian broadcast, Soviet, Chinese and Indian radio all drew on this kind of light entertainment in their broadcast to East Africa, and they deserve consideration alongside newscasts and political commentaries for which the services are most famous. And I also think there's a slightly unfair distinction for its worth between a political broadcast and light entertainment. What I read a radio play about a young student who's traveling to Cairo for the first time and is amazed by the wonders of the Egyptian state. It's hard to read that as anything but patent political propaganda designed in a new format. The same also goes for um, competitions, which tend to have questions like from the Chinese broadcast, which of the Asian states is the most supportive towards the global goal of decolonization? The answer inevitably is China, because China is the one who's asking. Um, I also argue that the British government deserves its own recognition as an audience for the services, and perhaps even constituted multiple competing audiences to anti-colonial broadcasts. As far as I can tell, British monitors were genuinely swayed by the arguments of anti-colonial propaganda. Uh, sorry, were not genuinely swayed by the arguments of anti-colonial propaganda, which I think would be unlikely in any case. But I do think that the British assumption that Africans were listening to propaganda and therefore being indoctrinated played a significant role in their response to political subversion. 
Uh, British reports constantly demanded evidence of subversive, of subversive listening, of the effects of foreign broadcasts, and even of the names and addresses of known listeners. A Kenyan and Zanzibari special branch, that's the police, kept tabs on known broadcasters like Guerra Ambitho and Ahmad Rashid Ali, including information on their political affiliations and their economic relationships. The assumption was always that because things were being said to Africans that they were necessarily being believed, an outgrowth of a kind of colonial research project that saw the quote unquote half-educated African as uniquely vulnerable to subversive political tendencies. At the same time, I argue that this intense interest in anti-colonial propaganda caused significant divisions within the British establishment. So the colonial office, which had long been treated as the expert in East African affairs, faced criticism from a foreign office that thought it was ignorant of the threat of communism as represented by new broadcasts. But the Commonwealth Relations Office, with its responsibility to maintaining ties to independent states, attacked the foreign office for risking these relationships by spreading supposed counter-propaganda material. The colonial office, for their part, frequently complained that the foreign office were wasting time and money looking for reds under the bed, but the colonial office also needed their own special funding to counteract the vilification pouring out of nationalist Egypt. At a critical moment in British colonial history, this kind of propaganda could have contributed to a wedge between the various departments responsible for East Africa and made the active government itself less possible. And what is surprising and particularly interesting is that, as far as I can tell, the British never found evidence of a mass audience for these anti-colonial broadcasts. In fact, it may have never existed at all. Radios and batteries were expensive, especially those which could receive shortwave broadcasts, and most listenership appears to have come from a small class of political students and clerks. British attempts to make listening to broadcasts illegal, which date back to the Second World War, and the general feeling of um, ostracize, the ostracization of subversive political tendencies could have put many, many people off. And Kristen Rothay makes the point explicitly in her work on Soviet broadcasts to Africa that some broadcasters may have been aware of this and only claimed to speak to a mass audience whilst maintaining ties to a small educated few. British reports, by contrast, seem convinced of the potential for a mass audience to come. They argue that even if anti-colonial radio was only marginally dangerous in the present, it would surely rise rapidly with the development of radio across the supposedly immature continent. As such, I suppose my last argument is that anti-colonial broadcast fed colonial anxieties about the place of Britain in Africa and the hopes for maintaining a level of colonial influence at a critical moment in the collapse of Britain's East African empire. You mentioned that, um, obviously the coronavirus pandemic had an impact on the the archives that you could visit. So I wonder if you could tell us um, what sort of sources you're using for this project in light of that. Yeah, I mean, for exactly that reason, I am trying to build on as wide a range of sources as I can. Um, there are many things that I'd love to access and I hope that I will at some point. But for now, I want to get the broadest possible vision of what the media ecosystem was and how the British understood it. So some of the most important sources for me so far have been monitoring reports, um, transcripts and summaries of broadcasts produced by the Egyptians, Soviets and Chinese. So the BBC's monitoring, monitoring organisation, that is the BBC Monitoring Service, made very detailed record, records of all of these, uh, daily records in fact from the late 1950s, which are collected and published as pamphlets entitled The Summary of World Broadcasts. 
their aim was twofold. Uh, one was collecting news for use by BBC broadcasts, and the other was supplying government agencies with information about developments in the region. As such, they focus really strongly on political developments and some security affairs. They are very interested in the progress of communism in Africa, which some members of the British government considered inevitable. As a result, they're also much less interested in light entertainment. Although for my purposes, I think it's always possible to read the archive against the grain. But to supplement this against the grain reading, I've been trying to turn to other sources. Given the focus of my work, a really useful one has been the British government archive. I've mostly been working with files from the colonial office and the foreign office. Um, items relating to publicity and propaganda have, have been particularly vital. One of the benefits of working in the field right now is that so much foreign office material on anti-communist and pro-imperial propaganda specifically is only being declassified now under a series like the FCO 168 series. Together, these new files speak to a really rich body of work and a considerably greater interest on the part of the British government in producing anti-communist propaganda than we'd previously even known about. The migrated archives of the East African governments, which were illegally transferred to London at the eve of independence in the 1960s, have also been valuable in demonstrating just what colonial governments thought about the effect of radio on their African subjects. The BBC archives give a lot of detail on how monitoring was done and the extent to which the BBC collaborated with government to counteract the supposed effects of propaganda. And then finally, it's been really useful to work through memoir and personal archives. A lot of British audience research in Africa was conducted through anecdote and hearsay. Um, Eric Lindstrom has talked about the colonial government's allergy at times to um, detailed quantitative research, which they thought could never supersede experience in the field. I don't want to repeat the mistakes of the British colonial administration, but I do want to know who British officials were, were relying on for these anecdotal accounts and what these cultural interpreters were saying. So in Kenya, Elspeth Huxley was a particularly influential interpreter, as was the paleoanthropologist Lewis Leakey, they both wrote extensively on the Mau Mau. Um, reports by visitors to Africa like J.A.K. Leslie and occasional BBC engineers helped to fill in the blanks with regards to the schedule of who was listening to what when and what a soundscape of the average cafe in Zanzibar would have been like circa 1956. A surprising amount has also been written by the broadcasters themselves and by the wider forces who helped direct and coordinate propaganda broadcasts. It's been vital to hear how propagandists in Cairo, Moscow and Beijing saw their own services, even if they're sometimes tainted by an insider's view of how effective those services were. So how does your project change the way we think about your topic? I think there are some things that I used to get wrong and that I think other people do still get wrong about media and political persuasion. And I mean about the period I study, but also to some extent the present day. I think it can be politically and intellectually convenient to imagine that people are merely being indoctrinated by propaganda and that people who engage with foreign persuasion are having their minds changed against their will. I think it's important to recognize what propaganda can do in terms of building communities and making certain forms of speech more acceptable and creating these kind of virtual networks of solidarity. I think that can be really helpful in assessing why some forms of propaganda seem to work. But at the same time, I have begun to recognize its limits in a way that I didn't before. 
this wouldn't necessarily be controversial if I'd started out as a, as a media theorist, but propaganda can only function well when it offers the audience something that it already wants on some level. And as I said, to the listeners of anti-colonial radio in East Africa, this could have been entertainment or a space for the release of political energy or a feeling of connection across borders. I think the only way to understand propaganda's effects is to look at people as audiences first. And then as for decolonization, here I feel like I'm only a small part of a wider movement to acknowledge the international influences on African independence. So much amazing work has already been done to uncover the ways in which political, social and economic pressures converged in East Africa and played their own parts in the process of decolonization. I'm thinking of projects like um, East Africa's Global Lives or the broader Another World, East Africa and the Global 1960s projects, which are doing just incredible work to acknowledge the influence of the world on East Africans, and I suppose in turn the influences of East Africans on the world. I hope that my own work builds on that by pointing to radio listeners in East Africa as active, critical and energetic consumers of propaganda. And I think you could say the same for a lot of the broadcasters I study many of whom were also drawn from the East African student population. I'm not that comfortable with the term global Cold War anymore, as the category of Cold War seems very much an invention of Americans and West Europeans to refer to a conflict that is, at its core, American and West European. However, I do think that anti-colonial propaganda is one area where it's relatively clear to see the ways in which the Cold War interacted with African lives, in the sense that these broadcasters were attempting to shape listeners to their own ends, but also interested in what listeners wanted to hear, um, interested in denuclearization as a political subject, interested in bringing decolonization to the, to the minds of Europeans. Exactly how broadcasters and audiences interacted is something that I think is worthy of significant future study. And then in a field that is actually pretty critical about the effects of propaganda. I hope that my work makes the case that anti-colonial broadcast did play a role in creating the conditions for East African decolonization in the 1960s. Again, I don't think you can get there by looking at East African listeners exclusively. It's too hard to prove any mass audience and to trace the political lineages for a form of listening that was so often like very subversive and very clandestine. However, by widening the scope of the study to include the British colonial apparatus as listeners, I think it becomes possible to trace the direct influence of anti-colonial broadcasts on key decision makers. In the final years of empire in East Africa, anti-colonial propaganda seemed to threaten mass subversion, created these tensions between key ministries, and it justified expensive experiments in counter-propaganda, which it should be acknowledged did not always create useful results. In a small way, I think they made empire less possible in the period in question. Your project also analyzes the ways in which Egyptian, Soviet, Chinese and British broadcasts interacted and competed with each other. Can you tell us more about that aspect of your project? Yes, of course. So one of the benefits of working with broadcast transcripts, like the summary of world broadcasts, is that you can see competing pieces of propaganda laid out together on the same page. So much like reading a newspaper, it creates this incredible sense of simultaneity. You can see who's talking about what, what are the biggest propaganda angles of a particular week, of a particular month. And even when transcripts are spread across different volumes, I think it's possible to trace ideas of um, propaganda and persuasion and interest between the major broadcasters. So 
To give an example, if Radio Cairo began a series of programmes on the Somaliland elections in February 1960, it's likely that Radio Moscow would follow in the next few days. If Radio Moscow produced a short play on American imperialism, it's entirely possible that Radio Beijing would be inspired to do the same. By the early 1960s, again, I think the peak of the period that I'm talking about, anti-colonial radio services were part of a complicated media ecosystem. They're gathering news from each other, they're poaching each other's best presenters, and they're in a bit of an arms race to expand the languages in which they broadcast. This media ecosystem sometimes stretches into print. So there are anti-colonial newspapers in Tanganyika, like Machado Plantan Zuhra, which print daily timetables for Soviet broadcasts. And then through British and American broadcasting, I think these same themes can stretch into the press of the so-called first world. Anti-colonial radio services, because of their close contact with nationalist movements and with subversive networks across the region, ended up becoming a tool of information gathering by the British colonial regime and informed British broadcasts to the region. However, I think the most interesting thing to emerge from this side-by-side -side reading is the direct conflict between different broadcasters. And I'm far from the first person to write about this. In his amazing media history of colonial Algeria, Arthur Asaraf points out that Italian and French broadcasters in the 1930s would obsessively monitor each other's broadcasts in Arabic, just so they could refute each other's claims the next day. In the Second World War, too, Soviet broadcasters would sometimes broadcast over German frequencies in order to shout obscenities over the top of Nazi news broadcasts. And you can see equivalent processes in the period that I studied. So Radio Cairo and the Voice of Israel often directly referenced each other's broadcasts. In 1960, Radio Cairo even managed to employ a former Voice of Israel presenter, the Nigerian world traveler Olabisi Ajala, who produced a documentary series on how Israeli propaganda sought to undermine Africans. And on the other hand, letters to the Voice of Israel stressed how important it was to undermine the vicious lies of Radio Cairo. Clandestine and grey propaganda stations were the most common tools for opposing other broadcasters, though. One of the most interesting stations I've come across is the Voice of Free Africa, which claimed to broadcast from the deepest and darkest heart of Africa, but was in fact produced from a suburb of Cairo uh, as a secret extra arm of Cairo's normal broadcasting services. Because it was secret, even though it maintained a lot of the same stuff, it was given a broader scope for aggressive anti-colonial action but it also used this platform to criticize communist propaganda in a way that would have been politically inconvenient for the Egyptian authorities at the time. The Soviet Union, for its own part, created a supposedly public broadcaster at the height of the Sino-Soviet split. It was also allowed to voice more severe criticism of the Chinese government than official Soviet sources. And that's because its opinion supposedly came from the will of the people and not from government involvement. And I think this direct comparison is really interesting. It suggests that broadcasters believe their audiences were also listening to the supposed broadcasts of their enemies, or at least engaging on a day-to-day -day basis with people who did. More interestingly still, at least to me, if you look at audience research from the period, this does appear to be true. Many listeners did find themselves drawn to multiple stations, either for news and commentary or for music and cultural content. I think this paints a nuanced image of broadcasting in East Africa. Anti-colonial propaganda services didn't just preach to the converted, they spoke in a rich and competitive atmosphere and to an audience who were more than capable of comparing the claims of competing broadcasts. Ultimately, I think this vision of propaganda gives a little more power to the listener in the process of propaganda. 
we have to think less about how East Africans were manipulated by radio and more about what that radio could offer East Africans in return. You mentioned at the start of the podcast your involvement with the uh, Doing History in Public blog. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and what its sort of purpose and objective is. Yeah, so uh, much like the Scottish Centre for Global History, to be honest, um, our mission is to spread interesting and engaging new work in history to a wider audience than the normal audience of academic publishing. So we try to write in an accessible way that undergrads, postgrads, and people outside of academia can read, um, and to link our research to issues that seem to be in public discussion. So we've previously had posts about how historians are coping with the coronavirus lockdowns, or um, how we should see the crowd and the protest as an instrument of history. I think it's, to an extent, teaching us more than it's teaching the people that we're writing for, it's a chance to write for uh, a very different audience. Um, and that gets you to reassess the kinds of things you're interested in. Um, but at the same time, it's lovely to receive feedback from people outside of our normal circles. And I suppose just to feel like there's a, a place to talk about history and to make space for the role of the historian um, that is ultimately, I think, quite humbled by what people are interested in and quite accountable to the answer, the, to, to, to questions like, why should people care, I think. Great, that is going to conclude our discussion. Thank you for joining us, Alex, and I wish you all the best in your future work. Thanks so much.